the Fertility Podcast is here to help you understand more about your fertility and for the last eight years has published a lot of conversations with experts and people sharing their stories. It's now going back to its roots, giving you people's lived experiences once again to give you comfort in knowing there's a community of people who get it so you find commonality, be inspired and know you're not alone. Started by me, Natalie Silverman, a former patient, once I was pregnant after fertility treatment, I later joined forces with Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant, who is now your host. And here she is. Hi, I hope this podcast episode finds you well. As you know, in my intro to every episode, I kind of like to do a little bit of an update on what's been going on in the world of fertility and also what's been going on in the world of your fertility journey and myself as well, or anything else that's kind of interesting and out there. So I've got some really interesting news from the IVF regulator, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Association, easily known as the HFEA, which makes it a little bit easier to explain it. And I have been working with the HFEA on one of their stakeholder boards to help the HFEA in looking at their IVF add-on rating. Now, if you're you're going through IVF or you're about to go through IVF, you may have come across IVF add-ons. And these are the extra treatments that can be offered to you by your doctors um, during the IVF process. And that's, you're particularly offered those when you're accessing IVF privately. So they cost money and some of them have evidence to support their use and some of them don't. And this is something that I'm really passionate about is that giving that education so that you can help to make up your own mind and make your informed choices to whether you want to try these IVF add-ons. So the HFA have been looking at how to improve the way that they rate these. So previously they had a, a traffic light system, which was red, amber and green to, to determine whether or not there was enough evidence and whether these uh, IVF add-ons were safe. So they've actually now launched, as of last week, launched their new treatment add-on rating system. And the system now has five categories providing information and evidence on how effective or not these add-ons are at improving the chance of conception. And this will really help you to make better informed decisions when it comes to thinking about using add-ons. So in brief, we have green, which is On balance, the findings from high quality evidence show that this add-on is effective at improving the treatment outcomes. Then we have AMBER, where the information is not clear whether this treatment add-on is effective at improving treatment outcomes. And this is because there are conflicting moderate high quality evidence in some studies. The add-ons have actually been found not to be effective. Um, So that's a bit of a conflicting one but something important for you to be aware of that there could be some benefits there may not be gray is where we can't rate the effectiveness of this treatment on improving treatment outcomes as there is insufficient moderate to high quality evidence then black this is showing where on balance the evidence from the moderate and high quality research that we have shows that this add-on has no effect on treatment outcomes and then there's red And this is where there are potential safety concerns and or on balance, the findings from moderate to high quality evidence show that this add on may reduce treatment effectiveness. So that's an important one to be aware of. 
So there's a little bit of information for you. I hope that it's useful. Do go and check out the HFEA website uh, and their treatment add-on page so that you can really understand that and look at whether your treatments, the treatments that you're interested in, are potentially um, affected and have these either a, a green, hopefully, or a amber, grey, um, black or red rating so that you can hopefully make up your mind as to what treatment you would like to try. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can access, access it from there as well. So on to today's episode. So this month of October at the time of recording has been about various different awareness um, days and weeks and months and I mentioned those in the last episode but also for what's really important and an important one for fertility is that October and today which is the 18th of October on day of recording is World Menopause Day and we wanted to highlight that menopause doesn't just affect somebody in their 50s and that it actually can affect a woman in her 20s 30s and 40s and how that then impacts on your ability to conceive. So I'm delighted to have two guests in this podcast episode. One is Dr. Siobhan O'Sullivan, who is a plastic and reconstruction doctor in the, working in the, in the NHS. And the other one is my lovely friend, not a stranger to the podcast at all, and colleague, Kate Police. And Kate is a, um, a specialist nurse working in fertility. And she is a, she's a font of all knowledge when it comes to Um, menopause and particularly what we're going to be talking about in this episode is premature ovarian insufficiency or POI for short. So Siobhan's going to kick off by telling us what POI is. She's going to be sharing her story and then talking about the impact on young women when it comes to dating and relationships. So it's a really interesting to listen to um, Siobhan's story. And then Kate is going to be covering the fertility options for you should you be facing this diagnosis and also what it's like for getting older with POI. So without further ado, let's bring our guests in. Hi, Siobhan and Kate. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast. Hi. Hi. And that was Siobhan. Sorry. (laughs) And that's Kate. So we're so lucky today, and I feel so privileged that not just one guest, but we've got two guests which is fabulous. So thank you both for um, joining me. Um, We're going to have a really interesting discussion about premature ovarian insufficiency on what is menopause awareness month for October. Um, So I'd really like to hear your story first of all, Siobhan. Um, So tell us a little bit about POI and what that has meant for you. Yeah, so, um, well, thank you for having me on today. So I'm really excited for this chat. Uh, primary ovarian insufficiency, so POI, is when your ovaries stop producing normal amounts of estrogen um, and then stop working properly before the age of 40. And then this can lead on to a premature menopause. So I found out that I'd gone through POI. It was, it was quite a difficult time. I'd just come to the end of a seven-year relationship um, that had broken down. And as a result, I'd come off the oral contraceptive pill. Um, and I started getting some kind of hot flush symptoms, but I just assumed it was because my hormones were all over the place. I've been on the pill for so long, so I didn't really think too much of it. And it wasn't until the hot flushes started getting really quite severe on the train on the way to work to the point it was the middle of winter and I was having to strip off. I was sweating. It was quite embarrassing that I thought maybe I should go and get some blood tests. So I think I booked him with my GP, went and got some blood tests which was all fine. I wasn't really expecting too much from it. I remember getting a call from quite, um, it sounded like quite a young GP at the time. And I was on my GP training placement. So 
I just it, it sounded like I was talking to kind of a friend he didn't really sound like he had a clue what was going on but he just said like, oh you know you've had some abnormal blood tests we should probably get you get a repeat set and again just that thought that was all fine so got booked in for some more tests in a couple of months time and then in the in between that I'd gone for a smear test so I went for my smear test and there was a a bit of an older female GP there who's obviously got a little bit more experience. And I remember her just turning to me and saying, oh, you've had some abnormal bloods. Are you aware of this? And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm getting getting the repeat set in a few months. It's fine. And she was like, no, no, I'm quite concerned about these. I've um, not seen FSH, uh, which is a follicle stimulating hormone, one of your hormones. I've not seen levels this high in, in anyone your age. Um, I'm going to refer you to the primary um, ovarian failure clinic. And that was the first time I'd kind of heard anything of this sort I hadn't really been my mind wasn't on that track so that kind of blew me out the park a little bit and then really the process started from there she referred me to see a gynecologist but the waiting list was I think it was about six or seven eight months and then I obviously started doing a little bit of research and I was 31 at the time so I was aware that fertility isn't something you really have a lot of time with I was a bit anxious I thought I needed to kind of get this sorted So I ended up going to see somebody in the private sector just to try and get some answers and get a diagnosis. And I saw an absolutely incredible doctor um, who was, I think, possibly the kindest person I've ever seen. He was just so gentle, so calm when I went to see him. He did a few blood tests for me, um, found out that he said, "There's, there's one blood test we really need to do, and that's to see if you've got any eggs left. Other than that, we can, you know, we don't really have any, it's not a rush to get on with everything. And he did that blood test and that came back as having uh, no eggs left and after that he was like to be honest there's no point in us doing anything more in the private sector just come and see me in the NHS and we can because we've quite we've lost the time now you just we've got things we need to do we need to put you in for some scans we need to put you in for some further tests but there's no time pressure anymore so it all happened quite quickly in the end which I think bowled me over a little bit and I think possibly didn't help me with the processing of it at the start And I kind of, within six months, had gone from being in quite a stable relationship where I was planning a future (laughs) and thinking that I was possibly going to be married and that was in my future to six months later, that that was completely off the table. So it was, it was, it was a whirlwind really. (laughs) Yeah. And what a shock, you know, you've gone through, like you say, feeling quite stable in your life to everything changing personally and then with your own health in such a small small period of time, I don't know how you were able to process it. I, I guess you probably weren't able to process it during that time. No, definitely not. And, and I mean, I take the time now to say, I know I've been very fortunate. Like my story isn't a lot of, you hear a lot of stories about people who take a long time to get to diagnosis and they've been to GPs multiple times with symptoms. And I, I don't know if it was kind of fluke or just chance that somehow mine were picked up by the right people at the right time. So it, it in that sense, I was lucky that, the diagnosis came quite quickly and we could think about that and I understand I'm I'm almost very fortunate in that sense but it well it did mean that I don't think I processed it at all and then by the time I had the diagnosis I think because of the stuff that was going on in my personal life I was very resistant I didn't want any more change I didn't want to face up to it I was like I've not welcomed this into my life therefore I'm just going to box it away and I'm not going to deal with it I wasn't really, I think coming to the end of a relationship, I then wasn't in a position to think about children because I kind of had gone back to ground zero again. So I was, it wasn't that I was trying for a baby with somebody and it wasn't that I was in that place in my life. So it was trying to grapple with the fact that you now can't have children when you weren't really 
working or planning for that or in the near future so it was I think it was quite a confusing time as well because you don't know how you should be feeling or what you should be feeling I picked up something in your book actually exactly on that when you said you're you you're facing the loss of something that you didn't already you didn't have yeah and, and what that future meant and I guess you know that kind of brings me to thinking about you know what has that meant for you going forward when you're 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 kind of navigating relationships you're you're still young you're dating you you know have relationships again how how do you navigate through that process well I think I think that was the thing that hit me with the diagnosis at first and it's it's really hard because you speak to other people and you kind of have to grapple with their their feelings on the matter like that their reaction to your diagnosis and oh my god you can't have children that must be terrible you must be devastated and it's hard when you're not at that point in your life because you are part of you is devastated but at the same time you're worried about other things and I think I was more worried about personally I felt a bit broken well I felt very broken I felt that there was a part of me now missing and then I think that meant that I was like how is anyone else going to love me if I'm not whole and if I'm broken then how am I going to find somebody else to love me because it's I mean it's hard I think most people when they're (laughs) dating later in life realize it's quite difficult to 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 find somebody anyway and then trying to contend with well I I'm not the complete package anymore so why would anyone ever even look at me and I think it's it's obviously a different journey and if you're with a partner and you find out that you've you can't have children when you're with the partner that, that must be an awful and terrible experience to go through and I can't even begin to imagine what that's like when you've invested so much with somebody else and you're going through that journey together I think going through it as a single person is slightly it's just a different experience because you've no one loves you yet if that makes sense so you're you feel like you haven't got that person to fall in love with you yet so it feels a bit like well how how am I going to get that person to fall in love with me when I can't give them a child whereas if you're going through the journey together someone already loves you so you deal with it together I think that's probably it yeah that's a that's a really good way of explaining it and again picking up from your your book you talk about the fact that you're still figuring all this out and I guess that's part of it isn't it you're still figuring this out as you go forward yeah no definitely as I said it's I I had just come to the end of a relationship so all of a sudden I was back at square one in in that side of things but also I was quite early on in my career at 31 I'd I'd done medicine as a graduate level so I'd only qualified as a doctor when I was 29 so I still had a lot of training ahead of me and that takes up quite a lot of time so again I hadn't with my career even thought really about where kids were going to fit in in that sense and it is hard to contend with the fact you can't have something but it wasn't necessarily an immediate plan in your life and trying to work out how you feel about that is quite conflicting and then now I think moving forward, it's hard to trust whether you feel the way you do because that's how you feel or if you feel the way you do because you're in like a self-protective mode. So complex. And, you know, I guess, you know, when most people think about menopause and menopause age, they think of the mean age of the menopause, which in the UK is 51. So, and and we kind of know that the things that are associated with that loss of estrogen and and the impact that can have on you physically but also emotionally what is it like for you at your age now again having to navigate that thinking about the impact on your physical and emotional health now rather than later on down the line yeah so I think that's what sparked me to actually come to terms with the diagnosis I think it's really hard to explain but I think when I was first diagnosed I almost had it in a box of this is just something that's 
an, a label like oh I've gone through an early menopause it doesn't really have much of an effect almost like oh she's just a bit down she's just a bit you know I didn't really grasp the importance of it and it was when I sat down one day and realized that actually there was a physical impact on my health my bones my cardiovascular fitness all of those things could really take a battering if I didn't take this seriously that I was like oh hang on maybe this isn't just a a label now there is actually a consequence on ignoring this so it is something that I, I am trying to take seriously but again you're you're about the start of a surgical career the days are long I don't get the time to go to the gym as much as I'd like to you're trying to grab food at work when you can rather than planning it's it's quite hectic so my diet probably isn't the best that it could be I'm probably not getting as much physical exercise as I should and no one I think no one's even when people are aware of the diagnosis they I'm not sure they allow for it as much like I'm might be really tired at work and I might be getting really jumbled on my words and I might be forgetting things and I might be having some of these side effects of menopause but no one really allows for that. Yeah really hard an interesting point because I don't know whether either yourself or, or you Kate have seen what's in the news this week when there's potentially a uh, a case of discrimination that is going through the employment tribunal. A woman from Leicester who has been allegedly discriminated against because she was suffering from menopause symptoms, which she divulged to her manager. Um, and it, this resulted in her taking extended leave of sickness from her job, working sadly as a social worker. So working in a healthcare environment, you think we would be more understanding. But she, it was really difficult for her um, and like I said, sadly, she decided to leave her employment, but is now her case is now going to the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission, where they are taking it to the Employment Tribunal. So this is really interesting, isn't it? Because this could change the landscape legally for uh, women and discrimination due to menopause in the workplace, couldn't it? No, definitely. And I think, I think, unfortunately, just as I initially thought menopause and POI was just kind of like a label I think there's been that attitude in society hasn't it oh it's just menopause oh women are just going through the periods it's because it's something that happens to everyone it's part of life people almost diminish it and don't realize the significance which is it has such devastating effects and people feel scared and ashamed to talk about it which means that they end up going in on themselves and 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 things like this happen they end up yeah in difficult situations losing out on in work losing out on relationships it's it's really really sad so I think it's important that we start talking about it and and just try and empower women to feel like it's okay for them to feel that way yeah absolutely and then Kate from your point of view this all happened to you a little bit later on in life she's still a young spring chicken although she's really worrying about this but she's still a young spring chicken um so tell us about what that meant for you and I know we've covered it in previous podcasts so we don't need to necessarily go back into your full story but just the kind of fertility options that are uh, open to women with POI. So for me I was a couple of years older than Siobhan I think I was about 34 nearly 35 um, and like some other women um, I was diagnosed during my fertility journey so my husband and I had had two cycles of IVF with with my own eggs the first cycle wasn't successful I, and I knew, I knew from the scans and the, and, and as Siobhan said the blood work that it wasn't wasn't looking great um the second cycle I didn't respond to the treatment at all and then when I had the blood work repeated very much like Siobhan that's when I kind of got the idea that 
you know, I, this, this is what had happened. I had a premature menopause POI. At that point, um, you're kind of literally just finished one cycle. You're full of hormones and you're, you're wondering where you go next and what you do. So um, we took a little bit of time out and then decided we would try again using egg donation. And we were fortunate to be able to write an appeal at the time to our CCG who and we were able to get one more one cycle funded for egg, egg donation we waited about a year for that I was I was working in a clinical role at the time and I made the decision to carry on treatment at the clinic that I worked in because we'd already used the clinic and we knew it very well and we knew the staff very well um, we then had our final cycle of egg donation which um, I became pregnant which was really really good but unfortunately I was then diagnosed with a very rare condition which may be quite unwell I won't go into that too much but known as severe progesterone sensitivity um, which unfortunately led to a miscarriage but as you said Kate it's, um, it's then the issue once you've completed your fertility treatment whether that's been successful or unsuccessful of then you're still navigating POI and the challenges of, of what that presents in terms of um, managing treatment, managing lifestyle. But when we just think specifically about fertility options, obviously pregnancy is still possible naturally for women with POI, but it's important that they're aware that that's quite low. Unfortunately, it's about 5% compared to obviously a natural conception if there were no fertility issues, 30% upwards as we know. And it's the same if you look at if you think as a POI patient, I'll try IVF using my own eggs. It's it's unfortunately it's it's very very low, around five percent. And the difference is is with POI, the um, ovaries don't completely shut down, so spontaneous ovulation is possible. Um, periods are still possible. But if we were to say what's the most successful um, option for our fertility, and we put it on the table, then egg donation offers women a really really um, good percentage of 30 to 40 percent success rates for having having a family but it's a very very individual decision there's no right or wrong it's about having the information and choosing what's right for you and taking time to understand the process it's coming to terms of the loss of your genetics which is something that is is really difficult to overcome and, and takes quite a lot of work I think it's not something that you can navigate really quickly I know when, when we talked um, and Siobhan was talking about what POI means for her in her, her age now and and we talked about navigating relationships and dating and all of that what does POI mean for you now Kate a little bit later on in life so I'm now in my early 40s so next year will be 10 years since I've diagnosed I was diagnosed so um kind of when you're over 40 because you're always telling I'm always telling patients or um you know people that when I'm doing education sessions or consultations or talks or by students I'm saying to them oh well it's women under 40 that are impacted it's you know women under the age of 40 and I'm giving out the numbers for what it means you know for the, the specific age groups but then you think to yourself oh I'm over 40 now does that mean that I don't have POI anymore but then you think well no because I, I still I still um have gone through that process I still have POI I still have um different as Siobhan was saying short-term symptoms and long-term risks um, so although you're kind of over 40 and, and kind of merging into um, being around women, as we've said, as, at menopause at the expected age, I'm still a, a very much a patient, you know, a very much a, a patient thinking, no, I, I still have POI. But then if you compare yourself to younger women who maybe are being recently diagnosed or who were diagnosed much, much younger, maybe they're in the 20s and 30s, can you offer support, advice and support based on your own journey and, and what you've been through? So I think there's lots of options um, for the aged POI, uh, as I call myself, and, but you're, you're still very much a part of the community. Yeah, absolutely. I completely get that because, you know, it, 
it's also when you're thinking about the expected age of the menopause and women often question and ask, you know, how long can I take HRT for? Can I continue HRT after the menopause? And because and, I think there's this perception that once that's happened, well, you'll be absolutely fine. You won't have any symptoms. Everything will be nice and dandy and normal. And we know that that's actually not the case. And luckily, HRT can be taken for as long as you want to take it for, if indeed that's what you choose to take to manage your menopause, whether it is um, as a result of POI or the expected age. And I mean, whether Siobhan gets asked this a lot, some of my patients, you know, if there's anything with regards to HRT, which we do see a lot in the media at the moment with menopause at the expected age, they'll often ask, oh, well, does that mean that I know I have to change my HRT or stop my HRT? And I think that's one of the key differences with POI is that, um, Often um, HRT or hormone therapy like the oral contraceptive pill is recommended till at least the age of menopause at the expected age, which in the UK and Europe is about 50 to 52. However, the risks regarding things like breast cancer that we often see in the media, which I think is so education is so much improving things for women. The top, the, the top, the clock doesn't start ticking until um, you're at menopause at the expected age. So you have a different risk. Um, so it's very, very different. And you and, and if you're out there and you have POI and you, you're able to see a specialist, fantastic. But they may give you a specific plan of treatments that's relevant to you, your age and, and what's happening with you. So that's why that specialist input is, is important. Great advice. Thank you. That's really good. Is there anything you wanted to add to that, Siobhan? No, I think um, starting HRT at a young age, I was, I was quite worried about, I was worried about the breast cancer, but also things like DVTs because everyone talks about dvts but there's evidence to say as long as you're living a healthy fit lifestyle then that risk is reduced and it's it's more important that you're taking the hrt for your heart and for your bones um than the risks that people kind of associate with it so yeah i think it is like kate said it's education is so important because you you hear all of this background noise about what you should, should should do and it's important to actually get some solid advice really Absolutely. And let's face it, you know, you've got uh, an increased risk of a DVT on the combined oral contraceptive pill, but we don't worry about that so much because obviously the need to to cover yourself so that you don't get pregnant when you don't want to is is, is important. So it's, it's weighing up the, the risk versus the benefits, isn't it? Before I let you both go, could you possibly share one thing that either you wish you'd known before this all started or that you would do differently given your knowledge now and your experience and having lived that path? Um, so I think I remember when I spoke, when I first saw a fertility counselling specialist, she'd kind of directed me towards uh, things like the Daisy Network, which is a charity for POI, and she directed me towards kind of social media. And at the time I was very blinkered with that and I was like I don't want to share this this is my thing I don't know how strangers that I don't know are going to help me with this at all like it's something I want to deal with myself unfortunately it's very hard for something like POI to get that support however great your family and friends are ultimately your friends aren't going through it at all and however empathetic they are they just don't maybe always know the right questions and even maybe older family members who've been through things like the menopause it's just a different they went at a different time so it's very hard in your immediate circle to always get that support and I think I underestimated the power and support you can get from things like social media and from just reaching out to people and seeing other hearing other people's stories and getting that strength so I think it would try not to block it out you do need to face out I mean obviously you've got processing phase everyone's got processing stages when they get diagnoses but it would just be a bit more open-minded at the different ways you can get support because I think there definitely there are ways out there oh that's great advice and I think you know thinking about the fertility podcast and the reason why 
we do what we do on here is so that women can find and men can find commonality can can hear that they're not alone and actually reaching out for that support however you might get it whether it's through a podcast or whether it's through through an online support group or a face-to-face support group or reading information and and getting knowledge so that you can better understand your diagnosis it's so important isn't it so thank you for sharing that one what about you Kate what would be your piece of advice I would say um be be mindful that sometimes it's very, very normal to take a little bit of time to find the tr- right treatment regime that works for you. We often want an instant answer now, don't we, or an instant result because of how we're, you know, how we're used to living in society. But it can take a little bit of time um, and sometimes some specialist input to get the right treatment for you. So don't don't panic if you maybe try different types of HRT or different options for treatment, such as the oral contraceptive pill. It's important to find what works for you. So just be mindful that that's quite normal and ask those questions to your specialist um, and as Siobhan said you know reach out to um, women who've been through a similar experience because you're likely you may not know anyone in your peer group or your friends but you could reach out and and talk to people who have been through a similar experience and can support you. Amazing advice thank you Kate as always and thank you Siobhan having you both on has been so interesting and I really hope that it's helped people understand more about POI and what's available to them and what support is out there. I will put links in the show notes to where people can find you if they want to reach out for any more information and we'll also put links to your fabulous book Siobhan which I've really enjoyed reading so thank you for sending me a copy (laughs) and thank you both for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I hope you found that episode all about premature ovarian insufficiency useful. Um, And if this is something that you are concerned about, hopefully it's given you a bit of a roadmap on how you can get more advice, what things to ask for your GP, and also where you can get support. As I mentioned, I will put the details of Siobhan's lovely little book called My Life on Pause into the show notes so you'll be able to find it. Um, and it's a really good read. I've, I've really enjoyed reading it. I've got um, made lots of notes. So it's really, really useful. So if you're looking for extra information, then you'll find that there. It's so important that we keep talking about this subject. It's great to see that at last... Um, We're breaking down some barriers with regards to menopause. We just need to break down a few more barriers with regards to POI and early menopause. And then hopefully if we can do that, we're going to get more people feeling more comfortable about talking and also going out and getting the help that they desperately need. So thank you very much for listening to this episode and we'll be back in two weeks time with another episode. So keep an eye out on Instagram and you'll be able to find out more about what's coming soon. Bye for now. Please do rate and review the podcast as it's brilliant for other people to know what you think. Even just hitting follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast really helps other people know it's worth a listen. Also follow Kate on her Insta, which is Your Fertility Nurse. And if you'd like to book in a consultation with Kate to understand more about your fertility and reproductive health, visit yourfertilityjourney.com. 